Do we have any uh, lingering questions from anything before? The theory about there are classes for the rest of the month, this is when I always introduce the theory. The theory is we're not having any more the rest of the month because in theory I'm going to be out of town. I had two trips planned a month apart and now they've come one after the other, three in a row. So, until further notice, I won't see you until February, March. Three weeks, three weeks I'll be away. I'm going to, with Durga, to Seattle, as you hear every week. And uh, then I'm going to visit Tushti in Portland. And then I have to make a run up to Ananda Village and I'm, I may need to be there too late on Tuesday to get back in time for class. So, sorry about that. That wasn't... Um, I had it really much better organized than that. <laughs> All right, so we are on number 64, and it says, it's a very, very interesting one. My master, Sri Yukteswar, this is Yogananda speaking. My master, Sri Yukteswar, once asked me, do you love people? I answered, no, I love only God. That isn't enough, he replied. Later he asked me again, do you love people? I smiled blissfully this time and said, don't ask me. He could see that my love now was too broad to be spoken about. This time, therefore, he only smiled. It's very interesting, isn't it? There's a whole, uh, I've been, uh, I have my own little personal themes, you know, that I run simultaneously with all of this. I've been trying to really understand what Swami, how Swami experienced life how master really experience life. There's this... Um, the novice really divides the world up. I had somebody speaking to me quite sincerely, but he was trying to talk about his own spiritual aspirations, and he made reference to temporal relationships. And I said, you mean like me and your mother? And, you know, like, what are you actually saying? Because we, we tend to sort of say something like that, trying to not be, not be attached to temporal relationships. But it, it just somehow that, I don't think that's actually how it works. I think how it works is how Master is writing about it here, which is that instead of pushing all these things away, and now, of course, it gets complicated because... There's points of discipline where you have to be really, you have to push things away. But what, what really ends up happening, I think, is that you, you just love God through everything. And so nothing needs to be rejected. And nothing needs to be held at bay. Swami often talked about how many lesser saints had to hold themselves back a little bit. He talked about Ramana Maharshi, who was a Jivan Mukta, I think. He wasn't a freed, he wasn't a Siddha, he wasn't, he wasn't an avatar. But he was very austere. You know, he just, he lived in an extremely austere manner. Where Master, as a, an avatar, he, there was no reason for him not to, uh, he just participated in life completely. Because there was no, no necessity for any restraint because he, he saw God through everything. And whatever progression he's describing there in his own uh, sadhana, which, of course, they all seem to go through at the same time, which is why it's all so confusing. 
that in his own way of thinking through Teshro was testing him. You know, no, I, I've rejected this world. I only love God. But then somehow or another, his, his understanding of what God was and where he was expanded. So then it wasn't, uh, there was just no boundary to it anymore. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very fine line because, I mean, in the, back in the 70s and in the early 80s when there was just a lot of really goofy stuff going on in America as the whole spiritual scene started, but he's an enormously popular teacher. And his basic teaching was, look, God is everything, so do whatever you want, and it's all spiritual. And he was, he was wonderfully popular. You know, just everybody wanted to be his disciple. Like, why not? He even pushed it farther, you know. You should indulge every desire you have because, after all, it's all God. And did that, I mean, was that ever, like, just man, uh, mother's milk to so many people? Of course, it didn't take them anywhere, but they thought it would because of that. But so when Master goes the same way, you have to realize that we're just, we're, we're somewhere else with it completely. Because, and this is what I was saying a little bit on Sunday, because there was no, there's no self-interest. I think the entire key and the only key is that there's no self-interest. That's, that's where I come to when I come to Swamiji. Um, I, I use the word impersonal in the sense of there was no personal self-definition. So there was no, what that meant was there was no self-interest because there was no self to be particularly interested in except impersonally in the fitness of things. You know, it was a responsibility. Swami had things he was supposed to do. In fact, actually, I was just reading, you know, Swamiji always really stood back from allowing our uh, relationship to him to become defined in a personal way. I don't mean in a personality way, but he, he, he was very reluctant to take a role. But he sort of said, he said, it's really not to, he, he said later, it's not really to my credit. He said, Master told me that I would have spiritual responsibility for people. He said, and I'm just, I'm not inclined to accept it or not inclined to announce it. It wasn't that he, he wouldn't accept it, but he just wouldn't announce it. But it was, he said, it's essentially, it's not really about my preference. It's what Master told me I had to do. And he, he talked about even writing the whole path, the whole, his autobiography and just other things. He said, it's not personal. It's just what happened or what Master said. And it's just, you just have to put it out there. You, you can't have any self-interest. The self-interest can't be either to make yourself important or to make yourself humble. Either of those things is, in some way or another, concentrating on yourself. You just have to be relating to what is. And when you do that, that's when your experience of everyone just becomes so free. But it's presumptuous not to take yourself into account as long as you have karma. And if you know that you're vulnerable, then you have to be careful of temporal relationships. <laughs> but I don't find it, I don't find that vocabulary helpful because then we're just so, we've so abstracted ourselves away from what we actually are doing. But what we're really trying to, to get rid of is self-interest. Just choosing ourselves above others. Um, now, taking yourself into account spiritually is not a selfish decision. You have to see the difference there. It's like to be able to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go to your wedding, I'm not going to go to your party, you know, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. Um, 
is not self-interest if it's your spiritual self that you're choosing. Self-interest is when you're doing something that um, promotes the, the perpetuation of your limited identification. So it, 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 when, you're, when you're just trying to perpetuate or to expand your spiritual identification, that can't be selfish because anything that diminishes the ego by definition can't be selfish. So you see how it's, very, it's a very subtle line and you have to really draw it just exactly. You have to know. I've, uh, Swami put it to me once, you can't, in terms of that presumptuous line, he said, uh, if you lose your magnetism, or if you lose your dharma, but if you lose your magnetism, you won't do more good just by doing more. <laughs> you have to stop and collect your magnetism again before you can do good again. And that's also taking yourself into account. Just like, I, you know, you just can't give once you have nothing left to give. You have to stop and say, I can't help you because I, I don't like you and it interferes or I'm too exhausted and I can't or whatever it might be. Yes? Well, it's the difference between, yes, but you're not taking your ego into account. Uh, yes, but sometimes you have to take your ego into account because you know your ego is, is going to get out of hand. So you can't, it's the same sort of thing. You can't just dismiss it. It's like, I know if I get involved in this, oh, for, you know, just for example, maybe you'll become self-important. If I, um, there was a, there's a man in our community, I won't name him, but he's very careful of that. And he often says no to things because even though it's not obvious to us, it's obvious to him that he has a potential egoic involvement. And so he often says no when other people would like him to say yes. Because he knows that if he puts himself in that situation, he may take it to himself in a way that he doesn't want to. So he's taking his ego into account in that sense. He's, he's, he's thinking about how his ego plays into this. So that's why you, have to, you can't just dismiss it. You, you, and sometimes you have to make choices because um, I'm not that good. It's just as simple as that. It's like I just, you know, I won't be able to do that well because... I don't have the selfless nature that would allow me to. You know, if I do that, I'm going to take all the candy for myself. So I think I just won't go where the candy bowl is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Don take the microphone. Yeah, thank you. I'm a little stuck because a couple of times you've said, I won't uh, go to your wedding, I won't be your friend anymore, in a positive light. Meaning positive because I can't handle it. I can't do it. Okay. Yeah, that's what I meant. It's like, you know, if I go to your wedding, I mean, I'm a swami and I don't want to go to weddings anymore mm-hmm. because it's going to bring up things that I don't want to think about. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a way of thinking about it. Or, you know, it's like there's going to be somebody at that wedding that I really don't want to see. Mm. And I just am not going to go see that person because I don't have the strength to... Mm to resist what is I'm going to get drawn into if I go. And so I might be being rude on one level, but on the other level, I'm doing the right thing because okay. it's spiritually right for me. Where there's dharma, there's always victory. Okay, thanks. And yeah, so sometimes it's just... Um, I remember um, at a certain point, I was, I was involved at the retreat, when the retreat was the meditation retreat, and... Uh, Swami thought I was taking too much personal 
uh, I was too personally identified with what I was doing. And there was a big program coming, and Swami had something at his house, and he invited me to come, and I just told him, no, I couldn't because I had these responsibilities up here. But he, he was very, he scolded me strongly afterwards, and he had deliberately wanted me to abandon those responsibilities because I was getting into this thought that you know, nobody can do it but me. And he wanted me to just walk away from it, even though on any other level that would have looked irresponsible. And I made the wrong decision, and I knew I did, because I very rarely said no to him, but I said no to him in favor of because I had these responsibilities, which he knew darn well I had them. But uh, it was wrong, and he was very stern with me afterwards. He said, you know, this thought was growing in you, and I, I want to break that thought. So it, it's lots of, lots of different ways, different nuances. It's, that's why it's very individual. You have, to, you have to be very in touch and you have to be very honest. Does that answer that? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions or comments on that one? These are, they, we just have this whole series of... Anyway, that's what this whole book is, so we'll just do it. Um, yeah, I mean, why am I commenting now? We've been doing this for weeks. This is number 65, and it's just been this... It's this roller coaster ride. Now we're into something completely else, 65. Um, so this is about now this is Swami speaking I had been with him, Master, about five months when he invited me to a meeting at which he instructed another of the monks Harvey Allen on his wishes for the work in India the plan at that time was to send Harvey there Harvey, unfortunately, though a good person in earnest wasn't able to tune in to the Master's consciousness and a year or two later Caught up in opinionated attitudes, his very earnestness became his undoing. That's quite something, isn't it? We'll stop there for a little while. Desires for the world did the rest. You know, Swami presided over this um, this hotel at Mount Washington, where people would have the. I mean, and here's Swami, you know, with his extremely. Uh, extremely expanded understanding of who Master is and what, what's going on there. But he, Swami says this in many places and in other places also, that Master, he said, Swami said Master didn't even really talk about being an avatar or anything like that till, till the very last few years of his life. And his autobiography of a yogi didn't even come out till 1948, 46. And, you know, how else would you have known about him? He was this anomaly. There was no context for who he was. He was this Bengali man who lived in Los Angeles, who'd bought this, you know, mountaintop hotel, who who traveled around, who had traveled around, and gave all these lectures, and was really an oddity. There was no international world like the world we lived in. Prior to Yogananda coming to America, only Vivekananda and uh, Swami Ramatirtha had even come from India. Um, there, the, uh, there, were Rama, there were Swamis of the Ramakrishna order also in Los Angeles when Yogananda was there because Vivekananda opened that up and so some started coming. He sent them. They were sent by his order. And there may have been a few others, but you know, it was just nothing at all. So no one had this whole you know, guru thought of who a master might be and Master started, of course, when, in his 20s 
by the time Swami was there, but Sue was still just in his 50s. He wasn't like a venerable old sage. He died so young. And people had no real way of understanding him. And Swami said, Master just made no claims. He was very humble. He made no claims for himself. He just was there doing what he was doing, exactly the way Swami Kriyananda was. He just, Swami was just there doing what he was doing. He never asked anything of us. It's just we, we got inspired by his enthusiasm and got in line behind him. So Swami was always presiding over, once he became in charge of the monks, all these monks coming in and out all the time and going for ridiculous reasons. I was reading something else that Swami said, you know, just like they would be right there with Master and they would become enamored of Ramakrishna or as we talked about something here about um, going to Mount Shasta because they heard that there were Masters living in the heart of the mountain or they would want to go off to India. And, and there they are. They're right in the ashram with Yogananda himself. But, and here's how he put it, um, he wasn't able to tune into the master's consciousness. And, I mean, there's a hint there of the whole spiritual path. He was very earnest, and he was very sincere, and you can just sort of see him reading books and trying to understand but but it was it, it all becomes a matter of feeling what the vibration that's around you and realizing where it's coming from. I, I, because I'm working with my own you know with my own history with Ananda, I was talking to Karen Gamow about it, and she said she arrived. I think she said in 1983. Seems like she would have been there earlier, but maybe that was then. 83 is that when you came to? But she commented. She said even then. Um, Swami's position was really obscure. And she mentioned that she particularly, we were friends right from the, literally from the first day or two. I met them almost immediately. But she, but I, my relationship with Swami was different than a lot of people's. And a lot of those people aren't, st- aren't there anymore. Because I just always knew where everything was coming from. That's the only way I can put it. It just, it was all emanating from him, but he never said that. He just, he just went about his business and, you know, just if you were paying any attention. But I guess not, because people did come and go a lot. And it's exactly what they did with Master, because, see, we have this picture in our mind, and this is where the games that were played in uh, America in the 70s and the 80s, the guru games, you know, the guru would play the role. There, there, was, there was this man, I won't name him because he's still alive and I don't want to embarrass him, but he was so funny. He sort of kind of fell into being a guru. <laughs> and he actually said something to Swami. You know, this guru stuff is a little hard to get used to. <laughs> it's just, he was such a child in his relationship to it. But it was like, it was a part. It was like his job now. His job was to be a guru. So he was trying to learn, you know, like, his, like he'd just gotten to be the CEO of a company and he had to sort of figure it out. But that was really where it came from. And so such people, even in our minds, and I always think of Sri Yukteswar as the most interesting of this. We think of it, because we think of Sri Yukteswar as being somewhat stern, so we imagine that he was very blatant. But if you actually read between the lines, he wasn't blatant at all. He just lived in his ashram. He had personal wealth, so he was able to just live his life exactly as he wanted to live it. But the telling story in the autobiography, which says everything, is um, 
about uh, the boy, the, the young, is, was his name Kumar? Do I remember correctly? The one that Sri Yukteswar had the unfathomable uh, affection for. But he, Kumar ignored the master's hints that he should not go back to his village. Or even when master's trying to arrange the trips to Kashmir and Sri Yukteswar keeps making it not happen, you know, we think that he's going to go like this and tell you exactly how it's going to be, but that won't, that doesn't serve the disciple because it's very easy to do what you're told when you're told. But then when somebody stops telling you, what do you do? And what the masters are really trying to give us is the, the inner understanding of, of attunement so that we ourselves can be in tune with the vibration. So wherever we are, we'll, we'll be receiving the vibration of the masters. So, so that's what master would radiate. That's what Swami radiates. They just radiate this vibration. And if you feel it, you feel it so intensely that you can't imagine not that others don't. But this is what he said. He was unable to tune into master's consciousness, often because they didn't even try. You know, he was earnest. I mean, Swami doesn't say more about him, but he was learning and working in his own way, and that was ultimately his downfall because all of those thoughts just roiling around in his head, there was no... um, there was no way for him to discern right from wrong because he wasn't anchored in the Guru's consciousness. So he left. Even though Swami says he was a good and sincere man. Desires for the world did the rest. Oh dear. Temporal relationships probably played in there somewhere. <laughs> okay. The thought came to me as Master was speaking that even though he had said nothing about sending me to India, my work might be there someday. I therefore took notes of everything he said. Here below is what I wrote. Um, I, uh, I've been contemplating recently that Master spent so much, uh, Jesus spent so much time in India. Just the fact of, we always think of Jesus' life as being centered there in Jerusalem and that world, but he was there for three years. But all those years from 12 to 30, as Master describes, he went to India, and all of this is coming out. It's becoming more and more common knowledge. Eighteen years he was in India. And according to the most complete um, research that I see, which is from um, Abbot George in wherever he is from, but he talked about how, how Master Jesus was in the Himalayas, he was in Varanasi, and he was in Puri. Which is interesting. Here he was in Varanasi, Babaji is in the Himalayas, and uh, Sri Yukteswar, uh, yes, Sri Yukteswar is ashram down in Puri. Who knows? I don't know if any of that is really still the same. But then Swami asserting that Master was Jesus. So Jesus had a big work in India, had a bigger work in India in a certain way. He spent more time there. He just came to Jerusalem to try to pick up his disciples there and to try to, well, because it was the West was his, his real mission. But nonetheless, he spent all that time in India, and then he sent his disciple Thomas right back to India. Immediately, right after his crucifixion, Thomas just went to India. Thomas came back, um, apparently to see Mary. Just be, and he, he tried to get back before Mary died, but she died just before he got back. This is all according to Father George's, Abbot George's research. But the rest of the time he lived in India. 
when, when I read the life of Jesus, the only disciple that makes sense to me of being Swami suddenly is Thomas. Not that he was, and I would be extremely out of, way outside my portfolio to assert that he was. But it's interesting. That's all I can say. But Swami having the feeling here, as soon as Master starts talking about India, that India was where his work was going to be. Swami always had this really deep, well, partly because of this. But also, when Swami first went to India for SRF, it was, I mean, the actual events that caused him to be expelled from SRF happened in India. But Swamiji also, on a much more subtle level, puts it this way. When he went, see, Swami came to Master when Swamiji was 22. Master died by the time Swami was 25, or just before he turned 26. So his time with Master was very short. Then he had the next 10 or 11 years in SRF, well, actually until 1958, so it was only six years before he went to India, with uh, Dayamata, Taramata, Nandamata, Mrinalini, um, all the ones who had been longer, much longer with Master, except for Mrinalini, who's younger than Swami, who were in the work longer than Swami, and felt that they knew what Master wanted. And as soon as Rajasi died, or got sick even, all the things that they were putting forward is what Master wanted, Swami says in retrospect, were utterly bewildering to him. It just, was, it just didn't look at all like what he understood. But he was so young and it was so confusing to him. But then when he got to India and he saw Master's, the origin point of what Master was doing and the completely um, non-organizational approach to spirituality. Just that, you know, it was kept alive by the vitality of the inspiration, not by the organization having authority. And SRF was going in this Catholic Church sort of way. And so what happened to Swami when he got to India, as he described it, is that his own understanding was confirmed. And he said the way Daya put it to him was, India ruined you. Because what it did is that it caused him to realize that what he was getting from them was just their interpretation. And he didn't even think it was consistent with self-realization as Master would have intended it. So, so in other words, India played an extremely important role in Swami's understanding. And the whole story of, of Thomas in India is that when Thomas went to India for Jesus, he went to India and he taught Sanatana Dharma. And Thomas Christianity, which is what the, the Thomas Christians, is what when they called themselves, they had another word for them, um, Ishanis or something like that. But it was pure Sanatana Dharma. It was, it was just what you would teach if there was another avatar coming. And only several hundred years later, when the Portuguese came in and the missionaries came in, and then they systematically obliterated, literally burned the manuscripts, of everything related to Thomas Christianity and turned it into Roman Catholic. Except for Thomas's body, which is in a, sanctuary, in a basilica in Chennai and very, very powerful. But um, body, how could, that's a long time for his body. But that's where they said he's buried. Um, so all of that, you know, is, is, is potentially inherent in Swami just being there and being with Master and Master's talking about India to someone else, but it's an enormously 
vivid for Swami. And it was vivid enough that in, that's why he was sent by SRF in 1958, because it was sort of understood that that was Master's intention for Swami. So when it came time for somebody to go, that he was the one they sent. So Swamiji feeling it too. And then here's just Master's very specific notes. There should be a Bengali and later a Hindi correspondence course. In other words, teach in their own languages. Although it wasn't, English wasn't. Well, English was very strong there because the English had just left. The teachings, presumably the correspondence course lessons, should be a benefit of membership, not a separate cost, is what he means. A history of the work should be published in Bengal. The magazine should be in two languages, Bengali and English. In the beginning, it should comprise about 25 pages. Isn't it? Master's so exact. He's so practical. At this point, I wrote down revelations of self-realization. I am no longer clear as to what he meant here. Did he intend this as the name for the magazine or for the correspondence course lessons? There should be monthly festivals, festivities, he continued, and once a year, a congress of all the centers. Winter is the best time in India to hold such a congress. January to second, January 2nd to 6th, more or less, would be a good time over Master's birthday. It's, just, it's fun to see all these things lasting about one week and ending on a Sunday. <laughs> so when we started Spiritual Renewal Week, which goes from Sunday to Sunday, it would be good also to revive Sri Yukteswar's four annual festivals on the solstices and the equinoxes. A teacher should be sent around to the centers on a regular basis as a means of keeping them bound together. Recorded talks should be sent out regularly to the centers. Keep the organizations in India and America united a good way to do so would be to make them financially interdependent. Swami says, I will return to this point at the end of this section. He then spoke of the larger picture. This is very interesting. Because in the divine plan, materialism was intended to be manifested in the West. So you, you sort of, like we're all here having all these opinions, and Master says, well, the West was intended to be materialistic. How could it have been otherwise? And spirituality in the East... Krishna came first to teach the fundamental principles of spirituality. Later, Jesus Christ was sent to the West. The Eastern is the more ancient of the two civilizations. It was therefore right for the West's development to follow that of the East. Um, the Eastern world was well developed before they discovered the New World, which is us. Material realities come after the spiritual the teachings which God is sending now through this work provide a balance between East and West, between Eastern spirituality, that of India in particular, and Western material efficiency, that of America especially. Now, isn't that just fascinating? I mean, the masters are just working. You have the story in Autobiography of a Yogi of Babaji, and, and you have the, you know, his... Uh, he's going to leave his body and his sister tells him not to leave his body and he promises to keep his body for this whole cycle of time and uh, Babaji and Jesus Christ are in constant touch with each other and the two masters, one with the body, one without a body are working for the redemption. I mean, the rhythm, the time frame, the patience, the, the, the constant sort of step-by-step unfoldment and you might also say the inevitability of it all is just so much vaster than we think it is. We, we've been talking recently um, 
David Gamow, who's quite knowledgeable about economic matters, had a little gathering and gave a little interesting talk about his perspective on the stock market and the world financial markets, and you know, it's something he knows a lot about, and it was a very considered you know, little picture of what's going on in the world. Nothing that you, I mean, uh, he doesn't have any, any information that isn't regular information, but he just assembles it very well. I was reading just in little notes, Swamiji would, used to subscribe to all these economic newsletters. He felt as the head of a large organization with so many people depending on him, he needed to know what was going on. And, and one, of, one of his newsletters, its whole theory was that there was a worldwide conspiracy that was going to bring everything down. And the other one's theory was that it was sheer stupidity. <laughs> One is a, a group of brilliant people and the other is just a group of idiots, you know. But whatever, it's, whether it's a worldwide conspiracy or sheer stupidity, there's just a lot going on. But it's important for us to appreciate, I, I was saying this when we were having this discussion, the fundamental breakdown in the world, especially in the Western world, is that we no longer consider ourselves an integral part of a greater reality. And, I mean, that's another way of saying we're atheistic, but it's also a, a clearer way to say it because religion gets so confused with sectarianism now. But if you're not part of a greater reality, you are only part of yourself. And if you're only part of yourself, then greed and selfishness, why not? Just why not? Um, we were talking before the recording was on about um, our friend here who's, who went to his 50th grammar school um, reunion and a Catholic grammar school where there were 50 children and one nun who, who kept those 50 small children in line. And uh, some, some people say that the nuns used a ruler strategically on the bodies of the small children, but not all nuns did that by any means. They just kept command. But there was a whole um, uh, power when, when even religion was more in place because, you, were, you know, hellfire was a real, a real thing. And you, you had to be careful because you could cross over these lines and um, it could be very unpleasant for a very long time. You know, maybe you could you'd get away with it in this life, but it would catch up with you, you know, in the hereafter so to speak. But the first thing that sort of went out of our culture in the West was just all that kind of religion. It just began to go away. Children have soccer games on Sunday mornings now. When I grew up, no one would ever have put children's sports on Sunday mornings because we all went to church, or they went to church. I was Jewish. But church was there. Then it just went away. I mean, when parents will take their children to their soccer games, because many parents would go to church only for their children, but it became so not a part of our culture that all children's activities could be scheduled on Sunday morning. I mean, just think about the implications of that on a very, very long rhythm, what that actually means about what the society is about. So first we just lost religion, and then we just lost the whole idea that there's really anything anywhere except what I want. And, and if there is no greater reality then naturally I'm just going to try to make it work for me and I don't care about the consequences. And that's what we have right now exactly. People just don't care about the consequences. I was uh, last week, many times here, I end up talking about the music in retail stores. 
I had a, I had a revelation, you know, like uh, how cunning actually it is. I, I go to the, um, just Joanne's fabric store because in all the little crafty things I'm doing, it's, it's the closest place where you can find pipe cleaners and nice paper and little bits of shiny stuff. And so I go in there. I have to go in there. In other words, it's not a, it's not like a, it's not retail therapy. It's, it's like a job. I have to go in there. And um, the head office, which is thousands of miles away, gives them what music they're supposed to play and actually tells them what volume they're supposed to play it because I complain so intensely about it all. And most of the music that plays is romantic songs, and they're either romantic songs about how, you know, now we've finally met each other and now everything is just going to be so incredibly wonderful from now on, or how, what a disaster it is and how tragic it is and how we can just, all we can do is just drag ourselves forward and hope it'll be better the next time. But even the positive romantic stories, they, they stir up your emotion, they pull you out of your center, and then they basically drop you on the sidewalk. You know, Swami's music, by contrast, one of the reasons why we can listen to it so often is that it pulls you inside and it lifts your energy. Whereas when the first time I heard Barbara Streisand sing because I dropped out of um, popular culture in 1971 and I didn't really re-enter it until the late 80s and so I, I missed a whole bunch of stuff um, I didn't mind but I did miss so I didn't hear Bar- Barbara Streisand I knew of her I wasn't that far out of it but I'd never heard her the first time I heard her sing it was really really impressive I think I went to somebody took me to a movie and uh, she's, she was very very good at what she did but the way she sang and what she sang, it just, you know, she just put her hand on your heart and just kind of ripped little pieces of it open and then did exactly that. This is exactly how I felt. I mean, after years of meditation and yoga, she just stirred me all up and then just dragged it out, but not up, just out, and then just plop. There was nothing else to do with it because there was no resolution because there is no ultimate resolution of that. That's what leads us, as we were talking last week, when Master talks about all the marriages between the bow tie and the nice shade of lipstick. Elsewhere, he says, they listen to a a little music, they get in a romantic mood, and the next thing they know, it's babies and diapers. But um, what I realized in the store is that it makes you very unsettled, that music. Because you're, you're just, either even subliminally, you're either mourning your own tragic love affairs you're desperately wishing for one or you're falling into some kind of a mood about what and you, you want to resolve the way you feel. So what do you do? You spend money. It's so obvious. And that's why they just do it, because you spend money. You spend money because you're hoping, because you feel inadequate and unfulfilled in some way. So you go out and you buy stuff. I buy stuff. I mean, I buy stuff like that. I mean, I'm not that bad. But you know, sometimes it's like, oh, I need a new pair of shoes. You know, maybe another. I mean, I'm so limited now. I, I'll go. I'll go and look for another blue sweater. You know, big deal. <laughs> but but I know the feeling. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not compelled by it, but I'm not immune to it. But that's what happens. And and that's our entire culture. 
because that's all the music. All of it unsettles us. And because it unsettles us, we keep reaching out. And, but this is not, this is an observation of what it's doing. It's just this is what's happening because materialism is um, losing its mind. It's just, I mean, it's, it's going berserk. It's on steroids. Just way out there. And uh, wow, that's all I can say. But here, it's very comforting just to hear that. Oh yeah, materialism in the West, spiritual in the East, and now we're finally going to get the balance, aren't we? Okay, but not without pain, Master said. Okay. Not long after that meeting, the Master, to whom my interest in India could not but be obvious, commented, I have plans for you, Walter. He didn't say what they were, but I took him to mean that his thought was to send me, too, to India someday. Um, I was delighted. And then this is interesting. Later on, however, I fell into a deep depression. Here, I thought, I have only just found my guru. He is my India. Oh, don't let me be sent away from him so soon. Of course, Swami didn't know that Master was going to die so quickly. I mean, Master was just in his late 50s. Sri Yukteswar was still, you know, in his 80s before he passed. I mean, he had every thought, every belief that it would be decades before Master was gone. And so, on one hand, here's this young man. He's, what, 22, 23? He's going to go to India. I mean, Swami had already been all around the world, so it wasn't the exotic of travel, but it was whatever that resonance was with being in India. And, of course, here's Master who's from India and who personifies so much of that. But then Swami said he fell into a deep mood because of the thought of being separated from Master. Now it turns out, because Swami, a day or two later, the certainty came to me that he would never ask anything of me that was not in my highest spiritual interest. Thus I fought my way out of this temporary mental morass. The next time I saw him, he gazed at me penetratingly and said, no more moods now, Walter. Otherwise, how will you be able to help people? It was interesting to me because I've heard no more moods, Walter. How will you be able to help people? Many, many times. But I had forgotten the link. Because on one hand, it was like, what would have put Swami in a mood? Because he often just said, I fell into a mood. But this was a much deeper um, dynamic of, of, of intuiting his guru's request of him you know, being eager to do what his guru wanted, but then perceiving what kind of a sacrifice may be asked of him and the, the, the struggle that he had to go through of, of between his own desires, his own sense of his own capacity, everything. You know, his Swamiji's um, uh, what do I say? The degree to which Master completely dominated Swami's consciousness. It's very important to understand that. I mean, Swami, just from the moment he really picked up autobiography and, and became the story he tells of standing in the bookstore holding, clutching the book to his heart while his acquaintance was talking about the materialistic life and how Swami said, suddenly this unknown yogi and I were allies and everyone else was alien. And then he left everything and went. And Master, you know, they met and he was in the ashram. He was a disciple, a monk, and living in the ashram all in the very first meeting. 
Just think about it. He just walked in and there it was, and that was it. And he never looked back. So Swamiji had been absolutely desperate. He found everything he was looking for. And it wasn't the whole place and all the people. It was Master. And so uh, the thought suddenly of, of being sent away from that when he just found it. Uh, what a test that would have been. So what Master was really commending him for was Swami working his way through all that and understanding that if I am, as I purport to be, utterly dedicated to be his disciple, then how can any part of me resist anything he asks of me? So Master saying to him, no more moods, was much more than that. It was no more self-interest, no more doubting me, no more going with your own preferences. I mean, there was just a thousand implications there that were much more profound. Okay, any comments? From 1950 to 1952, Master planned every year to go to India and to take me with him, along with several others. That trip never materialized in the end because he left his body. That was the other reason why Asurf sent Swami to India, is because of the fact that Master planned to take him. And Swami elsewhere, I think in this book, says that the plan was Master was going to have Swami lecture in India that Swami would go around and lecture and sort of prepare the way for Master, and Master would come after him. So it wasn't merely that Master was going to take him along as a companion. He was going to put him to work for the cause of self-realization in India, which is why in 1958, when it was time to send someone, they sent Swami. As things eventually worked out, my service to his work was destined to be elsewhere. Will it also later be in India? Only time will tell. Interestingly, you see, as soon as Swami finished this book, almost literally, as soon as he finished this book, he went to India. <laughs> okay. Because my activity over the years has entailed creating a missionary work in America and Europe, the same question has arisen in my mind. I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that Swami uses that word missionary. Creating a missionary work in India. That's the word that I finally actually came to myself. Um, partly in this, uh, in the in the relationship between us and all of the what we call the colonies in the Ananda system. When I went to New Zealand, somebody told me not to use the word colonies. They're a little sensitive about that word over there. <laughs> but we call them colonies here because we don't feel sensitive toward it. Um, Master used the word. Uh, the life at Ananda village compared to the life in Ananda Palo Alto as an example of one of the colonies. And there is a tremendous magnetism to life at Ananda Village, enormously attractive. And I lived there 16 years, I know. It's just, it's marvelous. It's a complete world unto itself. And you just, you can spend all your days with devotees and it's just wonderful. Um, But sometimes people there also aren't sure that it's really a fit for them but it's confusing to them because it, sh- it, it appears to be the center of everything. That's why I said, well, you know, sometimes some people live in ashrams and some people are missionaries. And so I've always thought of what we're doing as a missionary work because there you're isolated and people will come to you, but you're not living there. When Swami in the early 80s um, 
shaved off his beard for a while and cut his hair shorter and started wearing Western clothes instead of... He would started lecturing in Western clothes instead of his Indian uh, orange Swami clothes. He said, well, if you're going to try to convert the heathen, it's better if you look like the heathen. That's how he put it. <laughs> because they'll accept you more readily if you look like them. <laughs> but it's... And that's what I, I think of here... I mean, I, that's why I'm interested that he used that because I never thought of, I never heard him use it except reading it here. Because this is like a missionary station if you really think about it. If, you're, if your natural life is a Vedic village or an ashram or a convent, and you know, per, per, speaking personally, my natural life, uh, I used to say, if you just throw me up in the air, I'll come down behind a stone wall somewhere. You know, it's just where I'll come down. I'll come down into some little stone room with a little you know, water tap somewhere. I won't, I won't come down into a, a villa or a... It's just not where I would land. I would land behind a wall in an ashram place where I'm just in, in a, a homogeneous spiritual environment. So here, we've created a, a vortex, but an inch away from our vortex. You know, just to get from where I sleep to where I preach, so to speak, I have to drive through um, the jungle, <laughs> I don't have to canoe, you know, and I don't have to worry about being shot by a poison dart. But it, that's really what we're doing. We're missionaries. And we, we moved here, we, I'm using the collective Ananda we, because this is where we were needed. I mean, it was nifty to be, you know, just as isolated as we were, but this is where the people are. And this is where people need the message, so that's where you come out. How can you call that anything except missionary? It's not missionary in the sense that we're out to save souls so they won't go to hell. It's not that kind of idea. That's why we said it's trying to convert people to the mo- their, own, their, their, their own selves. But it's, it's presenting this as an option. and You have to be somewhere. And some of us are quite suited for this. Even though there's a certain inclination the other way. We're just quite suited. We feel dynamic. What would I do if I, didn't, if I weren't able to constantly be introducing people to these teachings. What would I do? And if I'm living in a place where everybody already knows them, who would I talk to? <laughs> I need a larger population base to draw from. <laughs> Does that make sense? So that's how Swamiam says, I started a missionary work in Europe and America. It's fascinating how he says it. All right, let's take a, a brief break. Missionary work, that's where we were. Any questions before we go forward? So, because my activity over the years has entailed creating a missionary work in America and Europe, the same question has arisen in my mind. How can two separate works be kept tied together, the branch to the parent body? I would have loved for my work to be tied also to Self-Realization Fellowship, but that door so far remains closed. Ananda, therefore, is a separate organization from SRF, though it is one with SRF in its dedication to serving the Master. The Master had suggested that his works in India and America be made financially interdependent as a means of tying them together. Realistically, however, the financial flow was and would have to remain for many years entirely one-directional, from America to India, not the reverse. This situation might change in time, but from my experience, I think that the three best ways of keeping two separate works interdependent are 1. To have a frequent interchange of personnel. Swami would always, he was always moving people around. 
we don't do it so much anymore, but we still do. I mean, Exhibit A is sitting right in our chairs right now. This is an unwilling, but nonetheless, there they are. We have loaned them on a long-term basis to another colony. They still belong to us. <laughs> anyway, number two. To arrange for frequent visits both ways by the, the leaders in the two works. And three, to include every leader in whatever deliberations concern the work as a whole. In other words, don't have the head office people make the decisions and tell you what you're supposed to do. Swami always talked about his father, how exasperated his father was, because his father always worked in the field for Standard Oil. He was the oil geologist in the field, and remembers particularly, you know, some head office guy from New York would come out and look at the map and say, I think you should drill there. And it was just like he didn't know anything. He was just from New York. He was from the head office, and because he was, he thought he could tell you where to drill. Swami grew up with that. His father's exasperation, just because you're from the head office, you don't know anything about what I'm doing out here. So, you know, what happens in organizations, and it's, it's SRF to the core, decisions for Phoenix are made in Los Angeles. And, you know, decisions for Palo Alto are made in Palo Alto. Swamiji did everything he possibly could to both decentralize and ensure the enduring reality. of Even though, you know, the village is the center place, he was very explicit that all the colonies are equal. Nobody is under anybody. And everybody's autonomous. And what's going on in your world is your, you know, you have the first say. Because you would know better than anyone else. The conditions are different. I'll say something about it in just a minute. These are the practices we follow at Ananda. As a result, the financial flow also is becoming increasingly reciprocal. Yeah, it's the truth. But when Swami, for example, when he went to Italy, you know, everyone was, rather than just sort of say, this is how we do it in America, he just said, you know, let's just watch. Let's see sort of what's going on here. Let's try to understand what this new situation requires before we just say, this is how we do it. And when, when we went to India, Ananda went to India, it was the same thing. When uh, Swami was asked, should we do the Festival of Light in India? The Festival of Light is a very Western kind of, um, it's, it's semi, it's sort of somewhere in between. But he, his answer was not yet. Let's sort of see. Let's feel it out and see what's happening. Let's, let's lead with Kriya and then sort of see how much of the rest of it. He, I, I had the impression by the end that he was all for having the festival of like be given regularly in India also because it would help tie the work together because we all had something similar to tune into. But he never just said it exactly. I was told a very... Um, 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 when I did, I said it, it never. What I'm saying is, I have the impression that's what he wanted. I don't, but I wasn't even working in India, so I'm hardly the one to say. I didn't want to. I didn't want to say that's what he said. Um, when uh, Ram went to Africa, uh, Ram was living in Italy for a number of years, and then was transferred back from Italy to America. Ram is a black man from Los Angeles. With a, with a Baptist kind of church background. But he's, he's a, Ram is a marvelously adaptive, adapting character. He has an extremely open heart, and wherever he goes, he embraces what he's dealing with. When he had his, this is, I, Ram, forgive me for saying all this about you, but this is, when he had his colors done by a color consultant, she said, you could be a very good model 
because you could wear any color and any style because you would adapt yourself to what you were wearing. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's what makes a good model is they make all clothes look good. They don't just get to wear what fits them, but they adapt. And she said you could be a very good model because you move. Even though he's very distinctive looking with a skin tone and all of that, but you adapt to the world. And so the, uh, the people who were traveling with him in Africa, he went to Africa and as, as, as she said, she said, uh, somehow or another, he, he, he sang Door of My Heart just the way a master wrote it, but it sounded African. Because <laughs> he could feel it. He could feel the, the rhythm. And he just, uh, he could do it. He just made it seem like it belonged to that culture. Because that was, that was what was needed at that time. I, I saw this video once, and I, for the life of me, I have no idea what it was called. I actually saw it. I was alone in Swami's apartment, and it was in a drawer, and I watched it. Um, and I don't know what it is, and I've looked in his place for it, because everybody would like to see it. It was somebody had filmed a number of people who had visions of interviewed and filmed people had visions of Mother Mary. And it was just a marvelous, you know, a piece of uh, video. And one of the girls was an African girl, and uh, uh, they actually captured her the moment before and then when the vision started on the film. It was so... I read, I've read about this, about Teresa, about uh, St. Bernadette when they talked about how the transformation took place. And I saw it on the film with this woman. I, it's just in my head. She was a young girl, youngish girl. That you, you just, you, you couldn't see what happened. But you saw, saw suddenly that she was in one state of consciousness and then she was in another. And it was so clear in everything about her because she wasn't and she was then with... But what was fun to me is they, they were Catholics and they were in Africa and they were... You know, that I, I absolutely love that very rhythmical African sound and the, the, Af- the way they dance. I think I lived in that culture. But they were doing some, you know, some of whatever it is that they do so well. And then right in the middle of it, they're going, dumb, dumb, dumb. <laughs> So, like, yes, this is so great. <laughs> when, when Swami would go anywhere, you know, he wouldn't say, this is how it's done. He would say, what, you know, what is the soil of this place bringing up? And even within the context of Ananda, you know, Palo Alto is really different than Portland, and Portland's different than Seattle, and they're both different than Sacramento, and they're all a little different than Ananda Village, and you can't. You just can't run rules. You've got to have um, creative responses to whatever's there. <laughs> right. Okay. Any comments or questions? Let's see. Where am I? Okay. Number sixty-six. Master, I said to him one day. At that time, I was working in the correspondence department. What letters we are receiving from Germany. Such sincerity and devotion, it is thrilling to see. Yes, Master replied, adding softly, they have been hurt. That's why. All those wars and troubles over there, what they need is Kriya Yoga, not bombs. 
you know, this is going to sound a little silly, but uh, um, the little bit that I've read of history and so on, at the very end of World War II, when uh, uh, the Allies were just decimating Germany, trying to get that war to end, and they just destroyed so much of the buildings and the structures of what was going on there, and then they were they were so badly defeated and their whole economy was wrecked and just everything was a mess and they had just a t- terrible winter anybody who who talks about how just you know just even the concept of german winter is a terrible idea but then they had to go through this terrible winter when you know there was no fuel and the the buildings were broken and the spirit of the country was broken and i just i was just thinking a lot about that, just what that, uh, how it will sound silly is because I've been so cold this winter. But seriously, I've been in the house, cold, but it's just a question of, you know, how I turn on the heat. But it's very, it's very, very good um, to, when, when you have an impulse, to stop for a minute and think about it just before you fulfill it. Master gave advice to parents, which has to be understood in the right way, Basically, what he was saying is, don't coddle your children. Just because they want something, don't don't think that they you, it's the best thing to always give it to them. I mean, I know there's so many theories about child raising; I don't even want to touch it. But he said, you know, don't don't make them think that just because they have a desire, that desire has to be fulfilled. And just teach them to be a little tough. You know, it's cold. All right. You know, you can do without your sweater. You forgot it. You'll be fine. You know, we're, you're hungry, and we don't have any food right now. So just get over it. But but it's it's that thought about thinking that all my desires have to be fulfilled, and I don't have the capacity to resist them. So you know, I'm in my cold house, and for some reason, just because I, I've, I've just been thinking about what would it have been like to just be there that particular winter, especially, and just be able to. There was no way to do anything about anything, and that whole place was so demoralized and. When uh, Maria, uh, Maria Potapovskaya, Maria Warner, who had who grew up in in Soviet Russia, and you know, they actually you know were in those communal apartments and that sort of thing, um, she came to our house once when Swami was there. And when Swami would come, I would often have to. There would often be twelve or fifteen at the table for all the meals. It was a big deal cooking and a lot of fun. But I never even slightly tried. Economy was completely out the window. I just buy anything that I wanted, and I just cooked without trying to make it efficient. So I was making paneer, and I had made a lot of ghee in advance, and I wanted to fry the paneer balls in ghee. So I, and it was I was cooking for a lot of people. So I pulled out a frying pan about this big, and I had a whole lot of ghee, and I actually I did. I poured it all in. And I was just going to fry all the paneer. And Maria was there, and she was she was my she was helping with the cooking. She just absolutely couldn't stand it. She couldn't stand that I was just pouring all that ghee in the pot. And you know, I I explained to her, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with this. If you want to deal with it, go ahead. So I turned around. She's got my smallest pot. It's this big. She's poured about a half a cup of ghee in it. She's tipped it on the burner so that it makes a little puddle on the side because it just spread out, it was too thin. She's dropping the paneer balls in two or three at a time, carefully frying them, taking them out, you know, like this. It was like, you know, where, where I grew up, 
you're kidding. Nobody even ever had that much ghee and you would certainly never use it. You would use a, exactly as much as you needed and not one drop more. It's just such a wholly different way of being in the world. And it's, uh, how did I get into that? What, what was I saying? Oh, Germany, right. You know, just, these are all the um, things that are going to happen to this country, Master said. Which, for people who are attuned this way, you know, the, the mere idea of having less, getting along with less, it's like, okay, we'll get along with less. I mean, I've lived with so little in my life, I don't know if I could go back as far as I, as I lived when in my 20s. I like to think that I could. I don't know if I could or not. I'm a different person now. But the mere thought of doing that is like, you know, who, who needs this? In reading a Sabina Wormbrand, We've talked about Richard Wormbrand, who was a great, uh, marvelous saint. And his wife was also a beautiful saint, saintly woman, Sabina. And she was also in prison, not, not for as long as he was, but she also spent a few years. And, uh, it, you know, of course it was difficult. But she said, the people who, the women in the camps, in the prisons, the women who suffered the most in those circumstances, she said, were the socialites because they had no internal reality. And they would, you know, they often had been arrested in their evening clothes and, you know, for the next two years they were wearing some evening dress because that was what they had been arrested in and that was what they wore. She said, but they had, you know, she at least when she was in solitary or deprived of everything, she had her whole spiritual life and Bible verses that she knew and prayers and songs and she said, but they just had nothing. There was no internal reality. So when we think, as we've been talking lately, about that kind of economic deprivation here in our world now, I mean, Palo Alto is a slightly different place because even though we're extremely materialistic, we're also a really, it's a really smart culture. You know, it's not an empty-headed culture by any means at all. It's a very uh, intelligent, extremely educated, um, it's, it's just different. It's, it's not a superficial wealth. So much of the wealth here is, has been generated by the people who are enjoying it. That's very different than where it's inherited or uh, so on, where there's, just, where there's no participation in it. It's one of the reasons why this area is so interesting, is that people understand creativity and prosperity. So on a certain level, I suspect, even though we may be creamed, you know, in, because of the... we also uh, a Grand Central Greed Center here. Um, but uh, there's, just, there's depth. And so we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to see. But anyway, so he talks about this. So, Master said, and it's interesting how he added softly, they've been hurt. You know, the people in that culture have really... They, the karma that that country got, the, the karma that people assumed when they were born into that country um, in this particular last century was not good. How wonderful it would be, I exclaimed, if Henry could be sent there someday with his knowledge of German. Henry was a disciple from Zurich in German Switzerland. Well, the master replied, maybe I will send you there someday. His reply surprised me. I thought you had other plans for me, sir. You know, it's interesting how much conversation with Master was on the intuitive level. 
Swami didn't say, but I thought you were going to send me to India because he didn't have to. I had a lot of conversations with Swamiji where only half of it had to be said out loud, but it was perfectly clear communication because we just knew. I mean, sometimes he wouldn't even, it was sort of a joke. He didn't do this a lot, but every once in a while it would, like, you know, what do you want with your tea? Oh, use your intuition, he would say. (laughs) You know, just tune into what I want. Don't make me say it. Okay. I thought you had other plans for me, sir. I was, of course, thinking of India. I'll be happy to go wherever you send me, however. Certainly, I have a natural rapport with Europe, having, as you know, been born and raised there. There's a great work to be done there he said in conclusion. For years I thought he had been referring to Germany, since that was how our discussion began. I'd spoken German as a boy, moreover, almost as well as English. Where God finally took me, however, was to Italy. The Master's words over there must have been a general reference to Europe, and not specifically to Germany. In fact, it was in Italy years later that I met with the greatest receptivity. In Germany, I encountered less openness to what I had to give. They seemed contented with their own way of doing things. I love that last sentence. That is a brilliant bit of wordsmithing, isn't it? They seem contented with their own way of doing things. Think how many other ways he could have said that. <laughs> so, I mean, but actually, there's, there's something really, this is something that's really fun to do. You absolutely tell the truth without saying anything derogatory. Because, you know, they, they seemed less open to what I had to give, so he's implying what it was. You know, they, they seemed contented with their own way of doing things. And that's it. You get the whole picture, but he hasn't, he hasn't uh, said anything unkind. And it's great fun to use your discrimination to be able to see things just as they are, but then still articulate it in such a way that everybody knows what you're talking about, but nothing unkind has been said. It, it, that, was a, that was a great... Swami talked about this one woman who was so annoying. Don't you just love her intensity, he said once. <laughs> no, actually, I don't. Not at all. <laughs> but it was just, you know, we all knew what he was talking about, and he was just turning it in a positive way, or at least in a neutral way. You know, when Swami started going to Europe, it was very annoying to him. He spoke French, and he spoke German, and he spoke Spanish. And we had, it was still to this day, we have almost no French people. He just could get no response in France. And German people were less... There was more in Germany. I traveled with him in Germany and Austria at different times, and we had a little more, but it never took hold. You know, we, we, drew, we drew Germans out of Germany eventually over to Italy... But there's a little bit going on. I think there's a little more going on now, I should be right. But when Swami was trying to make it happen, he gave different programs in different areas, but it just wouldn't take hold. France did nothing. Spain, he never really got to very much. But Italy was just where it was always happening. There were just always more people there. There were more people inviting him. There were people putting resources at his disposal. Ultimately, um, they gave us a, vill- a family gave us a villa to use at Lake Como, and that's how we actually really started the center over there. He met Rosanna and her whole um, spiritual group in Sorrento, and he had to learn Italian. It was, I mean, it, he was, it was a joke, but it was like, I speak three European languages, and the, one, of the, one of the few I don't speak, this is the one I'm asked to uh, learn. So he, he had to start over and learn it there. 
but it just was where the energy was, always. And so it's like you, even him saying, the Master says something, and Swami's also teaching us here. Master spoke of Germany, and so Swami went over and gave Germany a good try. But it, the energy wasn't in Germany. Instead of sort of dogmatically saying, Master said Germany, it was like, I have to go with an, a creative, intelligent flow. And that's, he said, how Master was. Master didn't declare first and then try to make reality match his declarations. He saw the potentials and articulated them, but he himself would go with where the energy was. And if the energy wasn't there, what would be the point? And that's how we also have to and this is, the, this is the very fine line about tuning in, but then also actually tuning in and not just either dogmatizing or just going with our own whims. As Swami repeatedly you know, encourages us to build on what he's created rather than just going off in a new direction. And then there's Harvey, who was earnest and sincere, but he wasn't ever able to tune into Yogananda's consciousness so he just didn't know how to, how to stay with it. Now we have neither Master nor Swami in the body, but the vibrations are still there. And the process of attunement is still the same. And the creativity is still required. So that's our story for tonight. And as it happens for the month of February. Um, chances are pretty good no matter what happens, we're not going to have any more classes. <laughs> Although I suppose if I'm here, I'll let you know, but I don't expect it. This one feels like it's going to happen. Oh, so I need to tell you what I read. Just a second, let me do that. I read from number 64 through number 66. Okay. Can I have a pencil or a pen from somebody? Thank you. I'll miss you. I'll be here on the weekends. What I'm doing is I'm taking like these Tuesday to Friday so I'm gone for a few weekdays, but I'm here every weekend. 